Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Big Pharma has taken a hit with the opioid crisis. Johnson & Johnson found guilty. What does that mean for the rest of these cases? The Amazon rainforest continues to burn, deliberately set, and it doesn't appear like they want much help from the outside world. We'll give you an update. The federal government, alongside Ontario, have announced $54 million to combat gun and gang violence. Are we doing this the right way? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, another issue we have talked about at great length on this show is the responsibility of Big Pharma when it comes to the opioid uh, addiction crisis. Uh, Many have talked about over the years how uh, these drugs were peddled and uh, marketed to uh, health agencies, doctors, hospitals, and such. Uh, almost uh, uh, ridiculing doctors if if they didn't uh, partake in this, if they if they didn't uh, get rid of their old old school thoughts about these sorts of drugs and realize that they could be managed, they could be controlled, uh, they were not they were clean, they were non addictive, they were this, they were that, uh, and and the savior for anybody with any sort of pain. And then all of a sudden, the over prescription, uh, the over prescribing of these drugs. Uh, started and we are where we are with the opioid crisis and uh, even now as as we cut back on opioid use uh, people using uh, non-traditional forms to get this medication through the black market uh, then therefore we have created the fentanyl issue so big uh, company Johnson and Johnson big pharma has uh, was found guilty yesterday of fueling the opioid crisis by a judge in Oklahoma uh, with BC wanting uh, BC also uh, chasing the same sort of uh, lawsuit with Ontario the possibility of Ontario joining in what does this mean how significant is this ruling uh, let Let's bring in Jasmine Dea, uh, J.D. and Company, personal injury lawyers, and with us now. Jasmine, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So how significant is this case? How significant is this ruling? This is a very significant ruling. It is a landmark decision. It's unprecedented. We haven't seen anything like this ever. And I think it's going to have significant ramifications here in Canada. Is this the first case of this type to make its way through the legal system? Because we've heard a lot about this, but is this the first one to go this far? Yes, it is. So it's interesting because there's been several individuals and class action lawsuits started on behalf of individuals against Big Pharma. But what we saw yesterday was a situation where a state has actually been successful at a trial against a pharmaceutical company. It's important to note, however, that there were two other companies named in the lawsuit. So Purdue Pharma, this is the lawsuit with Oklahoma. Um, So Purdue Pharma, the OxyContin manufacturer, reached a settlement before trial and agreed to a payment of $270 million to the state of Oklahoma. Teva Pharmaceuticals reached a settlement and agreed to pay $85 million. That left Johnson & Johnson alone to defend the state or the allegations made by the state of Oklahoma, and as you know, they were unsuccessful. Why didn't Johnson & Johnson cut a deal the way the others did? Very good question, especially when you have the Oklahoma Attorney General, Mike Hunter, calling them the drug kingpin. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I guess, their own prerogative. They feel 
that they were not guilty for starting this crisis. Um, there was a press conference held immediately after the decision was rendered by the Cleveland County District Judge Thad uh, Bachman. So he rendered his decision yesterday. He had a 42-page decision. He just gave some brief comments. And after that, there was a press conference. And the lawyers, on behalf of Johnson & Johnson, said swiftly that they intended on appealing. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But uh, they also said that they don't feel that they are responsible. And that's why they wanted to fight these allegations. The fact that the other companies, the other two companies, made a settlement, will that affect this case in any way? The case is that an assumption of guilt? Well, people can infer what they want to infer, but I think corporations look at uh, various factors. Um, you know, they have a duty to their shareholders, obviously, uh, to do what's in their best interest. They also have to look at cost-benefit analysis, and you know, we don't know what happens behind closed doors if they're if they're saying to themselves, "Okay, maybe we should help out here with the crisis." Um, but I think there's a lot of factors that go in, and I think that people can infer uh, liability or guilt if there is payment, but I think there's a lot of factors involved. Now, you talked about the appeal, and they were very quick to say that they would appeal this. How long will this take? How, how would this process work? The appeal could take years. Uh, the American system is very different than the Canadian system. Um, so, you know, depending on how they pursue things, it will take some time for sure. The problem with litigation, however, is that when you have a trial and you have a decision that was made, so yesterday there's a decision, there's an order made of $572 million that Johnson & Johnson is required to pay the state. When you have an appeal, that money gets tied up. So, you know, they're not ultimately going to pay it until the appeal decision is rendered and we see what happens there. It could be that there is a settlement reached in the interim between the trial decision and the appeal decision. That was my next that was my next question. So there still is the option for a settlement here prior to an appeal. Absolutely. There's always the option. And if we're looking at recouping costs for the healthcare systems of the states or in Canada of the provinces then I think settlement is a great way to remedy the situation because you're, you are agreeing on a figure and that figure will result in a check being cut and the money will go and help the people that need it. Um, now, since this decision has come down, uh, could they pay a reduced amount other than the 522 or, because, or 72 or is that that's a done deal? They owe that anyway. Well, so the trial decision has said they, they owe that. Then we have the appeal decision that will occur at some point in the future. But in the interim, resolution could be for any amount. There could be an amount of uh, $50 million or $5 million or $5. It is whatever the state of Oklahoma decides if they are able to come to a resolution, an agreement with Johnson & Johnson. It does not have to be that amount. It could be higher. It could be lower. It could be the same thing. What does this mean for other cases? Uh, does this speed up the process? It is a great framework for other cases. So there's thousands of cases right now in the U.S. against these pharmaceutical companies. And so they have a lot of new information to use in terms of not only the law, but also the evidence. Uh, both sides of the litigation in various cases get to see strengths and weaknesses, what they need to work on, what they need to use to their advantage. Uh, so I think it's going to be very beneficial. And, and when we talk about Canada, 
um, you know, a lot of people are asking, well, does this does this have implications for Canada? It absolutely yep. does because it's a common law jurisdiction. Um, Oklahoma law is still, you know, law that can be considered here. It's not that it's completely irrelevant. It will be up to the judges here to decide if they want to follow that law or use it for their consideration. But absolutely, it can be used here. So what happens to these companies now? I mean, each individual province, state, what have you, territory is is now going to uh, follow this process? Or is this game over and it's time just to settle up with everybody? I think this is the tip of the iceberg. I think yeah. that this is going to open up a lot of litigation. I think a lot of eyes were on the trial in Oklahoma to see what the outcome will be. And I think that we are opening a can of worms. A lot of people have said that it is kind of like when when individuals started going after tobacco companies. Right. Yeah, this is not going away. No, it is not going away, and I don't think it should go away because there's a lot of people... Uh, that are enduring pain and suffering. I'm a personal injury lawyer, and I see individuals who suffer from chronic pain um, regularly, and they um, are often prescribed these types of medications, and it's it's causing sometimes more harm than good when, you know, there are other medications that may have been able to treat them in certain situations, but instead they were given these types of medications where they have formed addictions on top of the chronic pain that they suffer from. So how did they, meaning these companies, fuel the opioid crisis? Is this by providing the product? Is it by marketing them falsely? Because it, from what I've learned and what I've researched over the years on this, um, the claim was that these were not addictive. And that certainly is the exact opposite that has happened here. So the judge yesterday rendered a 42-page decision, which is quite lengthy, but the judge does an excellent job at citing all the sources. And in there, he points to uh, some of the misleading marketing and promotion um, of these drugs. Uh, There's also evidence to suggest that there were studies that demonstrated um, the highly addictive nature of these opioids and how there are some other medications that uh, were less addictive that could have could have had the same intended effect on individuals uh, to relieve their symptoms but instead it was the opioids the more highly addictive drugs that were promoted and so on that basis people have become addictive and you have the crisis both here and in the United States in Canada we're the second it's the second highest uh, number of prescriptions of opioids in the world. Wow. Um, and, and it seemed as if they were on a campaign to change doctors past, and, and the health communities past uh, impression of this class of drug. That, uh, that you know, I mean, there, there's not a lot that's new here, but these drugs are highly uh, addictive, and, and it appears as if these companies tried to convince doctors that they weren't. So that's what there was. There was a lot of testimony given over the course of the seven-week trial. And seven weeks, by the way, is not um, that's not your normal average trial. That's a very yeah. long trial with a lot of evidence that went in um, in the form of documents as well as oral evidence by way of witnesses. Uh, and so I believe they had several witnesses speak to the way that these drugs were marketed to doctors, and that was part of the reason for the decision that was reached yesterday. 
So where does this um, leave the companies that have settled? Uh, does that mean that they would be settling with other provinces or states? That's up to them. But right now, um, you know, they they have settled, so they don't have to worry about the state of Oklahoma. But yes, they do have all these other individuals and all these other states uh, to consider. And, you know, perhaps they're putting a fund aside for that. Uh, $270 million and $85 million, which are the amounts that I said Purdue Pharma and Teva Pharmaceuticals paid, you know, it's not a lot of money for them. So uh, in the grand scheme of things, when we look at their... Even though it's only one state. Even though it's one yeah. state, it's, it's not a lot for them. You know, it will add up, obviously, sure. the more payouts there are. Uh, but they should be putting aside a fund and dealing with the situation because it's not going to go away. How is this going to change the industry, even public's perception of it? Well, you know, the public, unfortunately, are told on a sort of need-to-know basis. They don't know everything that goes on behind closed doors. I mean, some of these companies, these pharmaceutical companies, including Johnson & Johnson, said that they complied with all all the rules and the laws that they were supposed to with respect to marketing their drugs. And so how can they be found liable? So, you know, I think there's some truth there. Even in Canada, um, the companies are arguing that, hey, we're following the rules that are set in place by our government. So how can you fault us for this? So, you know, I don't know. I can't, I can't say. It hasn't been uh, tried in a court yet um, whether there's truth to that in Canada, but I don't think it, it – it doesn't appear that it's just the companies that are doing mm. a disservice to the public. Jasmine Day has been with us, J.D. and Company Personal Injury Lawyers. Speaking of the case in Oklahoma, Johnson & Johnson – uh, having to pay millions towards uh, their opioid crisis down there and the first of such case to make its way through the courts. Jasmine, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Amazon rainforest continues to burn. Uh, the G7 summit offered money to help Brazil uh, combat the fires. Uh, $20 million from a, uh, a group within the, or from the G7 itself. $15 million uh, pledged by Justin Trudeau, a separate fund, uh, and uh, offering to send the water bombers uh, to help. However, apparently fighting a fire in the Amazon is a lot different than fighting a fire, a forest fire in North America. Uh, many times we see large fires that uh, just engulf forests here uh, when it happens uh, out west or wherever we may see this sort of thing happen. Uh, this is something completely different. These are fires that are set intentionally, and there are a lot of fires, very small pockets all over the place, as opposed to one major fire uh, that is burning. Uh, so it's uh, it's interesting how uh, uh, this money has been received. It appears the Brazilian president not necessarily welcoming uh, the help with open arms. To talk more about all of this, Catherine Hochstetler is with us, a professor of international development, the London School of Economics and Political Science, and is with us now. Catherine, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. So uh, the G7 has offered money. Uh, Brazil want this? It seems the Brazilian president isn't, uh, isn't receiving this well. Well, we're getting really mixed messages from President Jair Bolsonaro. He originally said that he was not interested in receiving the money at all, 
And now he seems to be in something of a tit-for-tat back and forth with the French president, saying that perhaps he'll accept the money, but only if he gets an apology for the president from um, discussions they had yesterday about their wives. And also, um, he wants Brazilian sovereignty to be recognized, he says. But Brazilian governors are very in the region are very anxious to have access to some of that money. Um, and so there's mixed messages coming from Brazil. Uh, what did the French president say to insult the Brazilian president? Well, it was actually the, Bra- the Brazilian president insulted the French president, um, tweeting a picture of both of them with their wives and suggesting that perhaps um, uh, Macron was uh, jealous of Bolsonaro's wife and that this was the reason that he was taking a hard line on the Amazon. Um, so as you can see, Bolsonaro is another one of these presidents in the willing to say almost anything, willing to pick fights on social media kind of mode. And um, but, but some of the other aspects of this situation are kind of more serious. They're not just about the personality of Bolsonaro. Brazilian presidents have for decades now defended the sovereignty of Brazil over the Amazon. And that, I think, is a more serious part of this debate. Um, Brazilian, and this is military governments, democratic governments, the left is President Lula, the right is President Bolsonaro. They've all insisted that really the Amazon is Brazil's to make decisions about. Uh, Is that the case? I mean, 60%, I believe, is in Brazil. Is it their territory or with it being the lungs of the world, does the rest have a say? Well, um, different people have different opinions about that, but it's been a very consistent Brazilian position that the, the final decisions are theirs. Now, what I think is somewhat getting missed in all of this is that until the Bolsonaro administration, the last... Um, 15 years or so were actually really quite successful years. Until about 2015, Brazil was quite successful in controlling its deforestation on its own terms, using its own data, using its own enforcement mechanisms, with some money from um, especially the Norwegians and Germans. So, you know, there's a history of some of this European support for Brazilian action in the Amazon. But it's not as though all Brazilians simply want to destroy the Amazon. Mm -hmm. There's been really quite successful governmental and non-governmental action protecting the Amazon, although this current government is much more determined to develop it economically. Uh, you mentioned Germany and Norway, who would would obviously support uh, the rainforest with funds and such. Those have been pulled because of what has been happening with the deforestation. How is that playing out in Brazil? Well, I think it depends on who you are. Um, but But a lot of the debate is not just about the deforestation rates. That is part of it. But the issue that really drove the Norwegians in particular to pull their money was that the Brazilians wanted to completely change the way that they were going to spend the money. They wanted to cut non-governmental organizations out of any decision-making where they've been really big actors in the past. And so there's a real demonization of these non-governmental, environmental, indigenous human rights activists. And it was as much for those reasons as the sheer rise in deforestation that led Germany and Norway to say that they wouldn't be putting any more money into the Amazon fund. 
So who decides what the role of the Amazon is? Um, you know, you can see Brazil's point in a sense. They're trying to make a living. Yet, on the other hand, um, uh, as we mentioned, uh, 20% of the lungs of the world, I've heard. So uh, at the end of the day, how do you balance this? Because is it hypocritical for the rest of the world to point at Brazil and say, look what you're doing? Well, I think, you know, the other piece of this, of course, is, well, why is the Amazon being deforested? And a lot of the deforestation of the Amazon is in order to create additional agricultural lands. Mm -hmm. Much of that land is being used to grow soybeans, um, almost all of which are exported internationally, especially to Europe, but also to China. Um, And then, the beef that is also grown on that deforested land, 80% of that goes to Brazil. So much of that is on the Brazilian account. But the fastest growing part of the beef sector in Brazil, the cattle sector, is for export again. And so you do have this phenomenon where you have international actors, especially Europe, as a marketplace for these Brazilian products Mm -hmm. um, that are being grown on deforested land. Although there's been agreements sort of in, not, not informal, but private agreements between retailers in Europe and Brazilian agribusiness saying that um, they won't sell beef and soy grown on recently deforested land. And so interestingly, it's actually Brazilian agribusiness that has also been weighing in and saying, look, we have to be really careful what we do with deforestation or we'll lose our global markets. Uh, the money that has been sent from the G7, is that best to go to fighting fires or monitoring and enforcing the laws that are there? Well, I think some of it can be used for fighting fires, but that's not really the biggest issue. I and mean, Part of the issue is that we're only halfway through the fire season and that in the next couple of months, depending on the kinds of political signals sent in particular and economic signals sent, there are going to be a lot more fires being sent, being set. And so I think probably the more critical piece is to be sending the right political and economic messages that keep the next fires from coming. So it's not so much that money is needed for fighting fires, although some of it could be used for that. It's much more important that there be a really consistent message sent that no new fires should be set and that the government return to having much closer monitoring, um, which they have largely given up. And in fact, they over the last five years, budgets have been slashed in, in president after president um, that, that had been used previously to enforce the environmental laws that exist. Has that message been sent? Is that message being sent in regard well, to the second in, in regard to the way. second half of the season? Right. Um, not in any very clear way, but I think that's exactly what is being, the message is being crafted at the moment. And the Bolsonaro government in particular is saying different things from one day to the next about exactly what it intends to do, what it intends to allow. Um, it is getting, I think, the most effective kind of pressure that comes internationally is the pressure that then moves Brazilian agribusiness and local governors in the Amazon to say, hey, we do want to return to better monitoring of the deforestation because we recognize that we have economic interests there. But that's something that is being crafted right now. And But like today, um, there's a lot of very inconsistent messages being sent. 
Uh, the uh, Prime Minister has suggested Canada would give $15 million to help combat the fires. Uh, they talked about uh, sending staff, fire uh, fighters, etc. Fighting a, a fire in, in Canada, a forest fire in Canada, similar to fighting a fire in the Amazon. How, how do you, you have to attack this differently, considering it's not one necessarily large fire, but a series of small ones that were set? That's right. I mean, the circumstances are just so different. And, um, you know, in our North American fires, fires are, are set. And then because it is so dry and because of winds, you, you really get these giant forest fires growing up that are really blowing out of control and that need to have aircraft brought in to put the fires out. Um, in the Brazilian case, most of the fires actually burn out themselves quite quickly. And many of them are, from the start, fairly well controlled, because these are farmers, for the most part, clearing land, yeah. these fairly small fires to clear land, to clear debris, to prepare for another use of the land. Um, but, but most of them don't go out of control. And so, as I say, it's not so much that the fires need to be stopped, is that we need to stop them from starting. So what about uh, that's really go ahead. And that's really a that's really a political um, kind of message that needs to be sent. Don't start the fires. Whereas in contrast, this set of fires, it's pretty clear now that there was a group of landowners in the Amazon that actually coordinated setting about 300 fires on August 10th. And this had been predicted in advance, and local actors tried to get the support of the national government to stop these fires from being set, and the national government claimed that it didn't have the money to do that. Well, that's one of those places, if it genuinely didn't have the money to do that, that some of this kind of funding could be used to stop those fires from being set. How how much more of the Amazon is on fire today than it was this time last year? Um, I'm, I'm trying to think about what the numbers are. Um, this is, I mean, it is the the strongest fire season, the, the worst fire season now um, since either 2010 or 2012. But um, it's, you know, it's not actually a year that yet is really out of the norm. And the U.S. Space Agency, NASA, actually keeps data on the fires. And if you look at that, what you see is that the fires set so far are a bit ahead of the normal curve. And I'm not sure exactly what the percentage would be, but what really would be devastating is if they continue on that line so that it's not yet that so much has been set on fire, but it's just that it's an indicator of where the season is going. Um, So that's why I keep stressing these fires that might still be set. Uh, Many have talked about what kind of damage this will do, uh, even if it's just for one season. Is this irreversible? What does this mean for the rainforest? Again, you said this. a lot of this is cyclical. It's it's farmers burning uh, brush that they do every year. However, this year, obviously, it's gotten out of control. Is any of this irreversible? Well, it depends on, on how you understand the, the science. Um, and there have been a couple of studies just in the last year or two that suggest that some of the way we've been thinking about the Amazon is not actually adequate for taking account of how dangerous um, deforestation is. And these are studies that say that while about 20% of the Amazon has now been destroyed, that 
what really matters is that we're getting quite close to a critical tipping point. And so that once you go beyond a number that is much smaller than we used to think it was, that you begin to set some of these irreversible processes in, in motion so that uh, when, when, for, when land is cleared through fire, for example, it becomes much drier and then there are fewer rains. And then if there are more fires the next year, there will be fewer of these rains that now routinely put them out. Right. And so you can get in this kind of self-reinforcing um, system where even though it's not very much more land destroyed, that it begins to set the Amazon on an irreversible track. Now, that is something, as I say, the scientists are only starting to argue in the last year or two. And so, you know, there's still modeling being done, but there is quite a bit of evidence of some larger beginning of drying of the Amazon. Um, it's putting Brazil's hydropower at risk, for example, because increasingly um, the, the hydropower in the in the area is not performing the way that it was expected to perform because the Amazon is simply drier than it used to be. How will Brazil react to this long term, especially with world uh, with the world weighing in? Is it just a matter of time before the Brazilian president realizes he has to get a handle on this? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> um, and it's it's you know he's a president who came in with these kinds of policies pre-announced. So he said coming in that he was going to be developing the Amazon, he was going to be opening up indigenous lands, that way too much of the Amazon was being preserved. And um, I, I think the last time I did a set of radio interviews was around the time that, that, that the dams burst in, in Minas Gerais from the mining areas. Mm. And I, I said at the time, you know, well, we're seeing if Bolsonaro can learn. Now that was two or three months ago. Now we're in another setting where it looks like there are real consequences to the kinds of policies that Bolsonaro is announcing. If you listen to his rhetoric today, it actually doesn't sound like he's very capable of learning that there are these real physical limits um, and, and real need for policies restricting environmental degradation. But there's also a move afoot to impeach his minister of environment, who has been fully supportive of all of his policies. Uh, Brazil has a pretty robust legal system where many of Bolsonaro's policies have been challenged in court and some of them stopped. And so I'll be interested in seeing, I don't know that Bolsonaro himself can change enough to preserve the Amazon, but there are mechanisms in Brazilian society that I think are now working at even higher gear to try to reverse some of his decisions. Uh, how will will the world support Brazil on this? And, and in other words, obviously deforestation, what have you, this is farmers, industry, these people are just trying to make money. Is this about subsidizing all of this? Is, the, is this about the rest of the world helping out Brazil so they don't burn this thing down? Well, there, I would have said yes, because I, that has been an argument that Brazilians have made for some time. They set up the Amazon Fund in the first place in order to receive international donations um, under much the same kind of logic 
um, and rhetoric that you were quoting earlier, you know, the Amazon being the lungs of the earth, producing oxygen for the earth. And so they have had a longstanding position that said, well, if it matters to you globally, then give us the resources to do that. Yeah. But there is Bolsonaro then is a kind of new actor in that saying new things Um you know, he said he's not interested in getting this money. He said he's not interested in taking the money from the Amazon fund if it must be tied to NGOs. Um, so that's actually a very new stance on the part of a Brazilian national government, which until, you know, for the last 30 years has been quite accepting of international help, financial help and otherwise. Um, but Bolsonaro is kind of sounding a new uh, rhetoric on that right now. Catherine Hochstetler has been with us, Professor of International Development, the London School of Economics and Political Science. The Amazon rainforest continues to burn. The G7 has offered help. The Brazilian president hesitant to take it. Catherine, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The federal government, alongside Ontario, announced $54 million to combat gun and gang violence. Of course, uh, no stranger to how this has increased. Uh, We've talked about it many times over the last couple of years. Let's bring in Ju Young Lee, Associate Professor of Sociology, University of Toronto, a gun violence expert, and is with us now. Ju Young, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Is this new money? Is this new resources for this problem? Well, I mean, I... It's hard to know if this is new money for the problem, but in, in my perspective, this is the wrong way to approach the issue of gun violence. And, you know, we need policing. We need law enforcement to have good funding so that they can go out and make arrests and solve crimes. But we are entirely too reactionary uh, when it comes to gun violence. We wait until shootings are happening, until, in fact, shootings are rising until we start to think about how we can solve the problem. Um, so much of the, the work that I do and the, the work that colleagues of, my, uh, of mine do looks at how upstream solutions can really be a way to, to, to stop gun violence from happening in the first place. And it's also a very cost-effective way of approaching it. So uh, where is this money going? As you said, it's a reactionary, uh, it's a reactionary process here. Uh, as soon as uh, the public gets upset, as soon as headline, uh, these sorts of stories are in the headlines, uh, especially with it becoming an election year, all of a sudden more money thrown at the situation. Um, you, you talked about this being the wrong approach. Is this short term? Uh, you're talking more long term or is this just the wrong direction, period? Um. It would be hard for me to say it's the wrong direction, period, because there is a there is a role for police to play in all of this. Um, But just in the past week or so, there was news that the province was giving Toronto three million to increase the number of CCTV cameras around the city. Right. Which in their efforts would help surveil areas where there are shootings. Um, Meanwhile, you know, a a city councillor proposed opening youth centres earlier in the year, and that that motion was shot down, even though the price tag on each of those uh, centres would have been cheaper than, you know, putting up the CCTV cameras. So it's not really an either-or, I guess, commentary that I'm hoping to provide. It's really more that, you know, we we often wait until there's a problem in shootings, and then we throw up our hands and say, you know, we need to get tough on crime, we need to get more police out there, we need to give them new ways of uh, monitoring areas where there are shootings. 
But the, the, the long-term solution is really how can we prevent it from shootings from happening in the first place? How can we deter at-risk youth from potentially joining gangs? Uh, many have said we can't arrest our way out of this. Can we program our way out of this? In other words, is that the answer? Is, is it due to just complete lack of a social safety net of some sort that, that, that is taking us down this road? That's definitely one of the most compelling things that we've seen over the years in gun violence research is that when you invest in communities, um, when you build affordable housing, when you get rid of vacant lots, when you really um, increase the human capital of people who are at risk, you see a reduction over time in shootings. Now, the, the problem with this and the reason why it's not that politically attractive to some people is that uh, the results sometimes take a little bit of time to show. And, you know, in election years when, you know, political careers are on the line, people are often much more motivated to do something that makes it seem like they're really going to make a dent in crime. But long term, just, you know, funding programs uh, that that increase police presence on the streets that put up more cameras are not really addressing the root causes of gun violence. Uh, we've heard many complaints in regard to bail hearings. Uh, the, the mayor of Toronto and the Toronto police chief have been very vocal about this, that, you know, lots of situations have found, uh, in certain situations, uh, we found these criminals back out on the streets in, in no time. What about the issues around bail hearing? Is that another? Is that just another Band-Aid? So I... I... I, I have opinions on this, but you know, as a social scientist, I would want to see the data. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure on what percentage of people who are out on bail go on to reoffend or who go on to commit other gun-related violence. Um, so, without seeing that data, I would be, you know, remiss to to really make a, a hard commentary on that. But I think, in general, all of our solutions are usually invested in criminal justice solutions. And again, those are late game interventions. We've already had, we, we have a problem at that point. Um, you know, the public health model is one where we say, let's let's go more upstream and try to nip it in the bud before it even gets to a problem. Hmm. Uh, it, it sounds like it's an incredible road to hoe. Um, as opposed to writing a check and handing it to a police service or what have you. Is this, is, is this problem or this solution rather that you're talking about, is it, is there, is it just too complex for people to grasp? I think, I think sometimes it is, but I think a good metaphor uh, that people might be able to, to grasp is the current healthcare model. So currently, the way we talk about healthcare is when you get sick, when you get injured, we have to have an adequate hospital care service. We have to have good emergency care. We have to have um, aftercare. Uh, but what we're not talking about is how do we prevent people from getting injured in the first place or how do we prevent people from getting sick? And, and, and so, you know, these solutions that rely on the justice system to change rates of gun violence are doing just that. We're, we're allowing our society to get sick, and then we're throwing a bunch of money at a reactionary uh, solution to these problems. We're not putting any money into preventative medicine. 
exactly. That's a great way to say it. Why, why, you know, what you said just makes so much sense. Why can't the average citizen compare the, uh, 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 make that comparison? Why can't the average citizen realize very much like smoking, you know, uh, rather than putting all this money into treating people who have lung cancer, let's try to stop people from smoking. I mean, it's as simple as that. Why right. does that equation not work here? I think it's because, in part, people don't realize how costly it is to do it the way that we're doing. And so in my Globe and Mail op-ed that I wrote uh, about a week or so ago, you know, I, I referred to a report from 2008 that estimated all of the costs associated with shootings in Canada. You know, we currently spend more than $300 million on just criminal justice costs associated with shootings. That includes money for police over time prosecuting uh, alleged shooters, legal aid for people navigating the courts, locking people up, which is incredibly cost and effective. Uh, we spend millions in health care costs. Many people, most people survive shootings now, and they're going to become dependent on the state because they can't work, because they live with debilitating injuries. So there are so many costs that we end up paying in the back end. And, you know, part of the, the idea is really why don't we invest that in the front end, as you said, in preventative medicine? Is it because everyone gets sick, but only certain people become bad or criminals? Is it is it the stigma around who needs the help here? I think some of that might be implied. It's sort of like a, it's difficult to kind of disentangle that. Um it's difficult to really pull that out as like data as a social, social scientist, but certainly there are issues that gain wider traction, and in large part it's because of who they're likely to benefit. But I guess the point of all of this is to say that, you know, we all end up paying for gun violence in one way or another. You know, even if it's just our tax dollars going to incarcerating people, when in fact we could um, invest in those communities so those individuals end up contributing to society um, rather than becoming an economic burden. So there's a lot of good reasons that are not really, um, you know, I think these, these, these kinds of issues should be, should have wide political consensus, but it's not often the case. That uh, do, do, does the public have this illusion that it's just cheaper to lock them up than rehabilitate, than try to give them a foundation in which to live and contribute? Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of it. We underestimate the cost of incarceration, we underestimate the cost of healthcare costs that, you know, are, 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 you know, shared by everyone who pays taxes. So, you know, I think that we do kind of underestimate those causes, those costs. Ju Young Lee is with us from the University of Toronto. He is a, a gun expert. What about the handgun ban? What, what are your thoughts on this? Is, is this just another Band-Aid solution? Well, so I have a couple of different, I guess, competing ideas about this. But one is that a lot of time, a lot of the discussions about a ban have been at the city level. Um, the Mayor Tory has, has called for a citywide ban. Um, that is not a, a very effective solution. And in large part, what we've seen time and time again is that people can circumvent local or provincial level laws to get firearms that they want to then go on to use to commit violence. So. Um, the, the best example of a federal-level ban that has worked is Australia, where, um, you know, after their 1996 massacre, the government implemented a huge buyback program and then um, outlawed rifles and shotguns. And they saw a, a reduction over the last 20 or some odd years in gun-related deaths. The, the other dilemma, of course, is that Canada 
shares a border with the United States. And, you know, the U.S. is an outlier when it comes to gun consumption and ownership. So there are a lot of different variables whenever we talk about uh, firearm legislation and how it would impact gun violence. So a lot of what I've been trying to write and, and put out there, I guess, is really that some of these other solutions and in investing in communities are much cheaper and they're right in front of us. Is there any one area where we could see almost an immediate result if we only applied the pressure there? Well, one of the great programs that doesn't receive enough funding in Canada are hospital-based intervention programs. So these have been incredibly effective in the U.S. in cities like Philadelphia, which is where I lived prior to moving to Canada. Um, these are programs where a person who gets shot is immediately met by a social worker, by a number of different people who offer them support uh, during that transition into life after the shooting. And one thing that we've seen time and time again is that it drastically reduces the rate of injury recidivism. So one thing we do know is that if you get shot once and you survive, you're much more likely to get shot again than the average person getting shot in the first place. Hmm. So, you know, these kinds of programs really, really reduce recidivism, and they also reduce uh, retaliation violence, which is also costly and tragic. So that's a program that, you know, doesn't exist nationwide, but could be a great resource. What about those that are reluctant to get into such programs? I mean, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the scenario of uh, the death this pa- or the shooting this past weekend. North York man, they say up to 100 potential witnesses were there and nobody has come forward. So uh, obviously there's no trust there uh, or, or a lack of trust there. But but it would seem that even to bridge that gap will take forever. It's going to be a hard gap to bridge. But, you know, just funding police programs and increasing surveillance technology is not a way to bridge that gap. It's, if anything, could be another way to, to further that gap. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, these solutions that rely solely on the police end up you know, making many of these at-risk youth feel more marginalized in their communities. So, you know, there's a de- very delicate tightrope that we walk whenever we think about, you know, how effective these policies can be over the long haul, particularly if they have a chance of damaging an already tenuous relationship. Should we be bringing in other services as opposed to just looking this looking at this as a policing issue. You were talking about the situation in in Philadelphia where uh, you know if you're brought in and you've got a gunshot wound there's a process that you go through you meet with certain people uh, and hopefully try to uh, to be de-radicalized for lack of a better word. Um, and you know we've certainly heard especially in Toronto doctors that are just very upset with having to try to save these people's lives. Uh, in situations like this. Could the healthcare system, could other organizations be doing more to help? Is that the answer? Um, I mean, I think especially when we talk about healthcare, you know, they do quite a bit already. They're you know, on yeah. the front lines. And because of their expertise, you know, we're seeing a, a historic low in fatalities related to shootings. Um, but I think on the back end, if we're talking about long-term rehabilitative care, then absolutely the healthcare system in Canada, as good as it is, could be much better when it comes to providing long-term psychological care to people who are traumatized after a shooting, 
providing long-term physical rehabilitative care for people who live with shrapnel in their bodies and broken limbs and nerves that don't work anymore. So, you know, the long-term afterlife of gunshot victims who survive, uh, in large part because the emergency care is so good, is not one that's very good at this current time. So that could be another area of improvement. Does this all come down to how successful the economy or society is at any given time? Um, You know, at the end of the day, we need programs, but people need jobs. They need opportunity. Uh, They need a hand up. Are we doing enough there? That's definitely another big area. And, you know, it gets at the root causes. Um, One of the biggest predictors for when a person will become involved with the criminal justice system through an arrest is level of education and uh, source of income, their job. So, you know, the the most at-risk time in the life course when people are likely to get injured or involved in a shooting in some way is in that transition to adulthood between 18 to 26. Like that's the peak Mm -hmm. time for violent offending and for violent injury as well. And there's no coincidence there. It's really, you know, young people who oftentimes need a direction and some support to to stay away from those kinds of paths. And, you know, we could definitely do better in that area. Is it harder to break this cycle than what we think? Or with the right tools, is it relatively easy? Well, it's definitely not easy. It's, uh, you know, this is the... Because basically what you're... And it's the same thing with these, you know, the situation with the murder in in North York and, and no witnesses coming forward. You have to somehow convince a segment of society to take a giant leap from where they are, trusting where they're going to land is going to be a better place. Yeah. So there has to be support, but there also has to be an infrastructure in place for, you know, young people to succeed. So that means that young people who are at risk are getting trained in paths that uh, are going to help them get a good job and the new economy, right? And that was one of the things, just to kind of a little bit veer off, that was so brilliant about the late rapper Nipsey, Ru- Nipsey Hussle from South Central Los Angeles mm-hmm. is that he recognized that and was investing in tech education for at-risk youth in South Central LA, um, which is known as the gang capital of the world. So, you know, that's the kind of forward thinking we need to have is, you know, not only providing generic support, but very you know, specific support so that young people can compete in this new emerging economy. Uh, Bill Blair, obviously former uh, Toronto police chief, uh, many thought having him there we'd make some breakthrough, but again, uh, a lens too much perhaps through a, a law enforcement point of view. Is that an asset? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I guess I don't have a, a specific take on Bill Blair's um, time in, in, in office. It's more of, I guess, you know, as an expat from the U.S., I, I'm, it's interesting to me to see that Toronto kind of is following a page from many of the playbooks of American cities where the idea is like, let's get tough on crime. Let's really build up the police. Let's put boots on the ground. Um, and yet we see the persistence of these issues. This is certainly the, the story of Los Angeles, and it's uh, also the story here, it appears. Ju Young Lee has been with us, Associate Professor of Sociology, University of Toronto, gun violence expert. Ju Young, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. Thanks for having me. 
The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.